The British, the British dream. Below our expectations. We're about to be an all country. We're about to be a country. Wonderful to be here. The British dream podcast. Join us. Powerful people as we launch up despicable acts like these and the sickening and barbaric politics. What I hate about this Shut up in your face. is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you. All right. Nice one for listening to the British Dream, Vice's politics podcast. My name is Simon Childs, Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com. This week, student protests. Try to calm down and behave like an adult. It started with lecturer pensions. University staff went on strike over the winter complaining about their pensions cut, a reduction of about £10,000 per year in retirement income. Students from all over the UK joined the strike in solidarity with their lecturers, getting right behind them. Our producer, Sam Bonham, got on the phone to chat to a bunch of students who have been protesting, hogging the picket lines and running occupations at universities around the country. Bath, Exeter, Cambridge, UCL and Queen Mary's have all got involved in this one. There are some pretty strong views here. We'll hear from them in a sec. Let us know if you've got an occupation story. Tweet me at simonchilds13 and we'll chat about it and maybe get you on the podcast. So lecturers wanted the pensions they deserved. A lot of students supported that and they wanted the teaching they deserved. The teaching they were paying a lot of money for, but it grew pretty sharpish. Yeah, I'm a student at the University of Bath. So what basically happened, it all started off with the Vice-Chancellor's pay scenario when it was revealed that she was being paid 400 or £500,000 a year. Um, there was a massive student protest and lots of like people that looked very down on it and the student union didn't support it. And then it ended up that this massive student MO happened on campus. The vice chancellor ended up resigning, but then she took a year long sabbatical, um, which students uh, were nowhere near as much impressed with that at all, which kind of like just helped to build momentum for this wider student movement going on in Bath. It's uh, run by a group called Bath Students Against Cuts and Fees who since the UCU strikes have been going on, they've been showing solidarity with these striking lecturers, helping to organise events and um, get people flyering, picketing on the picket lines during the UCU strikes. For example, there's been strike on teach-out workshops that have been going on at the university during the strike days. My name is Ben. I'm a master's student at the University of Cambridge. Over the last four weeks, we've seen a real uptake in levels of student anger around the university. And they're starting to feel that something really is beginning to change amongst student conception of both their role in the world and the university system as a whole. So with the pension dispute, Oxford and Cambridge played a very key role in this dispute. They want to split out of the universal pension scheme so that they can increase their position ahead of all the other universities. And they wrote very explicitly in their response to the pension regulator, they said that they wanted to stop competitor institutions being able to use the strength of their balance sheet to secure more favourable financing. Students are increasingly beginning to realise that this isn't about pensions, but increasing the sort of marketisation of universities that began with the 2010 fee increases. So as a consequence of that, you know, on the first day, there was over a 1,000 people at a mass rally, and Cambridge is a very small town. These things just don't happen here. And we've seen an escalating approach towards this action, which culminated in an occupation. Um, the occupation was a very successful and forced the Vice-Chancellor not only to refuse to um, force lecturers to reschedule cancelled lectures, which was a big threat, but to refuse to uh, dock lecturers' pay who were involved in the strike, 
to lobby Universities UK for an improved pensions position, um, perhaps most significantly to write an open letter in the Times saying that the marketisation process had gone too far and to blame it squarely for strikes. Okay, so I'm Angus O'Brien and I'm part of the UCL Free Education Group, so I'm at University College London. So a lot of what's going on at UCL has actually been sort of bubbling under the surface for a number of years about how the university is being run. Leading up to the strike, the VCU, our, our provost, was um, subject to two no-confidence votes, one from an unofficial meeting of academics and then one from a student's union, which he lost quite sort of spectacularly. So in the four weeks of the strike, essentially a lot of what we've been doing has been focused around how the pensions dispute is actually connected to these wider ideas of how the university is being run, especially sort of sort of post-2010 and how it's being run more as a corporation, um, sort of business-like, with the purpose of just increasing sort of profit margins, which means uh, increasing student numbers. So at UCL, in the last 13 years, we've increased from uh, 17,000 students to about 40,000, and they're currently spending £1.25 billion on um, expanding the um, university estate, and simultaneously are saying to lecturers and um, um, academic staff and staff at the university that there's, that there's no money left for anyone's pensions. So, so at UCL Free Education, we've been, been trying to link these two things. A bit. So we've been doing some certain sort of actions, for example, at um, University sort of Outpost um, in Stratford, where it's building a new campus at Hare East. We um, have been organising sort of student staff assembly to try and start thinking up and creating an alternate vision of our university, um, while doing other things that sort of more generally in support of the strike. So there's been two occupations at UCL. So I'm um, Sean Ellis. I'm part of the 40 odd students um, who are currently occupying the Oxygen Building in Queen Mary University of London. We've been here now since Monday the 12th of March, um, occupying in support of our threatening lectures, but also um, we have a special uh, situation here. University management has proposed cuts to bursaries for the poor students and kind of most struggling in Queen Mary, and we're kind of in direct opposition to that and trying to uh, put pressure on management, Colin Bailey and Rebecca Linwood to reverse those cuts. It's not all students, obviously, just the work brigade. There will be a fair few others complaining about the effect it'll have on their student experience and worrying about the lectures they're having to miss. There's always been quite a few people. They've had lots of, um, of teachings and teach outs or whatever they will be called, um, have been going on the whole time, uh, including a visit from people who had occupied UCL in sort of the late 90s, who came and sort of shared their story with the occupiers um, at UCL today. The on- ongoing uh, occupation at the University of London is sort of interesting at, at the moment. So um, the one at UCL was sort of tolerated by university management because they sort of relocated the provost out of his office because he couldn't get in and sort of left the occupiers alone. But at the University of London, um, a number of occupiers have um, taken a reception area in the sort of brand new uh, management offices, cutting off a big section of that. Um, and this has been a bit more sort of um, antagonistic with um, the University of London, who have had a sort of back down in the last sort of 24 hours or so. But that's only because they um, were caught on film drilling shut some doors to a hall that um, occupiers were in, so they couldn't actually um, exit. And so they thought, oh, that was probably a pretty bad look, and they should try and sort of scale down the antagonism. Following the occupations of 2010, the management had installed a series of card-locked doors all through the building 
uh, with students defeated by setting off a fire alarm, which meant that all the doors released. And they then had floor plans available and moved very quickly through the building to areas that sort of decided that were the most useful to take. Uh, and as with any occupation, that involves having access to a toilet, having access to, um, to some sort of kitchen facilities and having access to the outside so you can bring people in and out. And the people that were in there initially uh, were in some sort of siege conditions for about 12 hours with management refusing to let anyone else in or out. However, a large rally had been called for the next day, which meant that about two to 300 staff and students surrounded the building, demanding to be let into the space. Um, and then managed to stage a mass break-in where about 100 people climbed through the window. And from then on in, there was about 60 to 70 people consistently staying every evening. Um, and people saw the occupation as an opportunity to really reimagine what the university could be. There was teach-out, there was open sort of education sessions, there people discussing what they really wanted from the university and how that's not possible under the present system. But moreover, taking this as an opportunity to really begin to put into practice what people mean when they say free education. It was a very interesting space, and I think for a lot of the people that were involved, especially those who were the first time involved in sort of student activism, it was certainly a very um, sort of transformative moment. It's a great to listed building, so it's quite old, um, and it's one of actually the most expensive room to hire on campus. University management are quite unhappy that we're here because it costs them quite a lot of money in cancelled events. Well, also just in general, in terms of the vibe of the room, Morale is still incredibly high, surprisingly so, considering that we're now 12 days into an occupation. The amount of support we've had from lecturers, from staff in general at the university and beyond has been really brilliant. In terms of the conversations, um, it's kind of like a very democratic process in here. There's no kind of set leader. Um, we're all kind of involved in decision making and you know what, what we want to get from this occupation. So why are students protesting now? Pensions, yes. Teaching contact hours, certainly. Money, yeah, definitely. But so many of the students now feel like they're fighting for something greater. More than overall education costs. For many, it's now about the nature of education, about how students are being treated like consumers. I just have complete solidarity with my lecturers. I feel that looking forward into the future means that this wider process that the marketisation of higher education will affect students in the future as well as much kind of protecting their pensions, but also kind of looking at a wider future kind of view. There's a lot of the reasons why people are supporting this. I think students are beginning to see that they want everything. This isn't just a single issue thing. We don't just want better pensions. We don't just want more teaching hours. I think we can start with the very material things. We've seen uh, contact time with tutors cut. We've seen lectures um, being cut. We've seen student support being cut, maintenance grants being cut, um, bursary funding being cut. Uh, tuition fees are going up. You know, people are paying more to get less. People understand that this is damaging their education. And, and over the last sort of eight years, since 2010, it's been very apparent just how rapidly things are changing for the worse, almost universally for the worse in the university system. But I think what's probably more important is that people are seeing that it's beyond universities. It's not just about the quality of education. It's about the quality of society and the values that people put on education and how that's reflecting society. Like we're all supposed to be consumers now. Like there's no social value to anything. There's only economic value. And what does that do? What does that do to people who are humans and have to have this rich and complex social interaction with each other? It's, actually, it's devaluing everything across the board. We're basically paying to learn how to work in jobs that no longer pay. We graduate into a jobs market where wages are collapsing, where we cannot afford to buy houses. The concept of having a family to people is, you know, is just incomprehensible because you know, young people simply cannot afford to do so. 
So it's not just a struggle about universities, really. I think it's the struggle for the entire concept of the future, um, you know, the future that looks increasingly threatened by climate change. As we see this government lurch from one sort of crisis to the next, it's quite clear that, you know, Britain is going in a terrible direction, but no one knows really what to do or how to stop it. I think what's happened is the pensions have become a lightning rod for people's much wider anxieties about the direction of society as a whole. I think that's the more interesting sort of political subtext to what's currently happening on campuses. One thing that I've been particularly sort of concerned with is um, all the demands for uh, compensation by students. Even before the strikes had even begun, there were sort of about 100,000 students who had signed petitions across the country saying we want compensation for our missed classes. I thought this was really quite interesting because no one had actually missed anything at that point and no one knew how much they were going to miss um, or essentially the extent of what was going to be cancelled. But I think it really reflects quite a a sort of different environment in which we're sort of operating at the moment in which like this was essentially a demand to pay off the disruption of students it's like the, the entire power of of the strike is based in a disruption of students that's all um staff can do and it's not exactly something they want to do but that is all they can do so we saw uh, like um kcl and also the university's minister saying oh we're going to compensate students and sort of essentially pay them off for their disruption and like wield that against staff. So I think that's one really interesting sort of response that we've seen is this completely kind of like assumption of the consumer role by students during the course of the strike. But also on the other hand, we have seen a complete sort of rejection of this entire um, model and like being on picket lines, especially at UCL, we've had like three or four sort of teach outs every single day and a lot of people saying like, well, I've learned more on the picket line than I could have in all my contact hours. I've had more contact hours with my lecturers because I've gone and spoken to them on the picket line. And there's a sort of real desire to sort of create something completely different to what there is um, today. And so it's not this sort of assembly line of you go in at your undergrad and you come out with 50 um, grand's worth of debt and you um, and, and, and a degree um, at certain like level. It's trying to create something that's actually completely different to this. And that's sort of one of the more sort of positive responses we've seen. I think probably the most powerful response rather than this passive, like, um, or we need to just get uh, compensation um, for what we've missed. It's like, actually, this is the opportunity now. We've not got any classes. You know, let's go and like create what we want to create. In terms of our negotiations with management, it's been incredibly poor. Actually, we've had a situation where Rebecca Linwood has described working class people in a meeting with myself as an issue in this university that because we are the most diverse Russell group in the country, that it's a problem in her eyes that there are so many working class students and poor students who need to receive a bursary. So talks have done amazingly well, so we're keeping the pressure up. Neither side feels like they can concede. In fact, on the 13th of March, Universities UK and the Lecturers Union, UCU, Thought they might have hit on a deal, but UCU members rejected what some of them called a cheap capitulation. The universities are not backing down, and many of the students feel like this is just the beginning, really. To be honest, it's kind of difficult to even talk about the unis and the students as being homogenous, as there's so much disagreement within these cohorts about what they want. But one thing is for sure, it's not over yet. The protests are going to keep going, I'm sure. There's definitely a core base of organised students that will keep protesting and organising. And people are quite optimistic about, for example, the pension disputes to be resolved. People are optimistic. These, these strikes have been going really well. And I think they could be 
so hard to break through in talks at the moment. This certainly isn't the end of things. I think many people see this as just the beginning. In Cambridge, the um, ability to pressure management for further concessions is somewhat diminished now that management are actually cooperating with the general demands of students and staff. I think what will be interesting to see is how these struggles can extend off campus and into new spaces. So we've got the International Workers of Great Britain, the trade union, uh, has organised the cleaners and outsourced workers, such as security guards at the University of London. They're beginning the largest strike in British history of outsourced workers. I think what could also be interesting is um, what would a sort of DIY demarketization agenda look like? You know, there's big companies coming in. Universities UK have just hired Saatchi and Saatchi. What would happen if students began targeting these companies that are directly involved in sort of marketing education? And I think if students can begin to make the leap off campuses into sort of coordinated wider action against corporate targets, we should actually really see ways of cranking up the pressure on the university system as a whole to start becoming more social and less corporate. The strange thing about going back to classes this week was that it was supposed to be a return to normalcy, but it, it wasn't really. It, I'd not really had classes the last four weeks, and I'd seen this something that's completely different and something that's quite sort of transformative and then it went back to sort of regular I've got to be here at this time to go and sort of passively like listen to this lecture and then go to a seminar but that's not going to sort of happen anymore that, that can't be disrupted anymore so we now um, tomorrow's the last day of term and then we're into Easter and then we're into exams and I think there essentially has to be a significant escalation of the tactics from students and um, the University College, London, University College Union in through Easter and into next term. So essentially, I think I've seen a few things saying, like, how do we keep up the pressure or how do we come back to strike? But the strike is, is on now and it's going to continue through Easter. But the terms are going to completely um, change. There's no students aren't really going to get disrupted um, anymore. So the sort of thing that I've been thinking about and trying to um, push a bit is not simply just to do another 14 days of strike, um, but what would be the most sort of disruptive in terms of actually winning the strike, and this is sort of looking from a purely like tactical perspective, is if staff start talking about essentially organising, not a marking boycott, but a, I don't know what you call it, but just marking everyone at a first. The, this has obviously sort of happened before in, in um, other universities in other countries um, in sort of recent years and also in sort of more re uh, longer history. Instead of um, refusing to mark, um, which could result in uh, staff losing 100% of their pay until they get the until they hand in any marks, is they just hand in everyone at a 70. I think this is probably something that won't happen, but um, it's something that should be talked about in a sort of last resort or maybe nuclear option. Another thing we should be talking about is um, not going to graduation ceremonies. So I got my email through recently saying it's going to cost probably about £200 um, if I want like my parents to come to my graduation. So well, why why should I pay that money to the university when they're trying to cut my lecture or all the staff um, pensions? And seeing where we have this sort of rem remaining financial leverage um, to withhold and yeah, utilise it against the university. We've made it quite clear to management at this university that we are very comfortable and we're not prepared to leave until our demands are met. We are being quite disruptive in terms of holding this room considering that it is the most expensive room in the university. Um, it really angers management that we're here. Yeah, and we basically just telling them, look, you can either meet our demands, you can either get around the table and have a discussion with us and talk about how 
you are essentially funding working class students from coming to this university, you're stopping people from low incomes from areas where traditionally people tend to go to university, you're stopping actively stopping them from coming here with these cuts. And we're not prepared to leave. That's basically it. We're not prepared to leave until we get these bursaries, these bursaries back, our bursaries back, our cuts reserved. Well, there you have it. We'll keep you posted on how the strikes progress. Lord knows where it's going to end up. And thanks to all the students who we've spoken to in Bath, Exeter, Cambridge, UCL and Queen Mary's. Keep us posted with what you're up to at SimonCharles13 on Twitter. The British Dream was produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. See you in two weeks. Stay positive. Keep the dream alive. Thank you.